Well, as I said, our text this evening is uh, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. This morning we sang, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. It's a wonderful hymn uh, written by Robert Robinson. He had gone to hear Whitfield, whom, by the way, if I had the voice of Whitfield, you wouldn't have to be just figuring out how to amplify it. But that's another story. Anyway, he went to hear Robert Robinson. Uh, Robert Robinson went to hear Whitfield. And uh, he went to not hear the gospel, really, but to mock. Ended up being converted. Ends up uh, a Baptist pastor. And when he was only 23 years old, wrote, Come Thou Fount. Well, things begin to go downhill for Robinson and prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That becomes true in his life. And he begins to get involved with the doctrines of Unitarianism and begins to deny the deity of Christ. The story is told. There's some question about uh, the veracity of this. Some would argue that it's not quite true, but as far as I understand, there's... uh, uh, there's validity to it, but he's riding along in a carriage, and there's a woman who's reading a hymn book and rejoicing in what's going on, what she's reading in the hymn book, and she begins to hum, uh, Come Thou Fount. And she turns to him and says, What do you think of this hymn? Remember now, he's in the mess he's in. And this is his response. He says, Madam, I am the poor, unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago, and I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feelings I had then. So, prone to wonder. The people of Laodicea had wondered. From the reading, you can see they've drifted. You can see that they've left the God they loved. You can see that their love for Christ is at a low ebb, such that the Lord describes them as lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. Now, there were, in the Lycus Valley, there were three cities, uh, three cities that are familiar to uh, readers of the New Testament. Um, One is uh, Laodicea. One is... Colossae, and the other is Hierapolis. And we're told that um, this reference to their being lukewarm in Laodicea has reference to uh, the water supplies for these three cities. Um, Hierapolis, uh, apparently they had wonderful access to hot water because there were hot mineral springs Uh, near the city, and so they had access to hot water. Mountain Springs uh, provided um, uh, Colossae with uh, pure cold water. Uh, But water that came to Laodicea was water that had to be piped. You know, the Romans were brilliant engineers, and so through Roman aqueducts, water came to Laodicea. But once it got there, it was neither hot nor cold. It was lukewarm. And... uh, Jesus says, well, that's what you're like. Listen to one commentator. He says, they, the people of Laodicea, the Christians there, they were neither hot, they were not cold, just lukewarm. They were 
tepid, flabby, half-hearted, limp, ready to compromise rather than to stand firm, listless, having lost all concern to grow and having given up any desire for vigorous spiritual activity, worship, or gospel labor, like a hot meal that has, gone, that has cooled down and begun to congeal, or a cold meal that has been warmed up in the sun and begun to curl at the edges. How unappetizing. These Laodicean Christians sickened the Lord Jesus Christ. He was so disgusted with their state as they just sat there that he said, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. May we say this carefully and reverently, they made Christ want to throw up. That, quite frankly, is the effect of our lukewarmness on him. So before we go any further, you have to ask whether this is true of you, whether you could be aptly described as lukewarm. Has your heart grown cold? Are you limping along in terms of your Christian walk, uh, lacking in zeal, you know, finding yourself more excited by the things of the world than by things that are spiritual, and just going through the motions, outwardly perhaps not a great deal different than before, but, but inwardly things have turned off, inwardly the, the temperature's just been turned down. Well, you see, the verse we're going to think about tonight, I trust, will enliven you, will excite you. It should thrill you. Revelation 3 and verse 20, Jesus says to that church, and Jesus says to this church, and Jesus says to you, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. Now, your reaction to a knocking at the door, your reaction to that knock depends on who's knocking. And um, sometimes your heart sinks because the dreaded individual has arrived at the door. And other times, uh, your heart soars because people you love more than life, they've arrived. So I'm going to try and tell you about who's knocking at the door of our church and who's knocking at the door of, of your heart tonight. I want to tell you about the Lord Jesus. And the first thing I want to say about him is that he's glorious. So who's knocking at your door? I would knock here again, but that really hurt. This is, a, this is one solid piece of wood, and my hand still hurts. So what can I do? So imagine the knocking in your head. Who's knocking at your door? Well, he's glorious, is this one. He is, first of all, the amen. The amen. Notice in verse, uh, in verse 14 what, these, uh, what this text says about the Lord Jesus. He's the amen. That is, the Lord Jesus is the embodiment of faithfulness and truth. And he's the one who guarantees the fulfillment of all God's promises to his children. In 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 20, it says, For all the promises of God in him, that is in Christ, are yes and amen, or yea and amen, as the old King James says, to the glory of God 
through us. So what he's saying is this. What Paul's saying in 2 Corinthians is this. He's saying that all God's promises, what does God promise? He promises forgiveness. He promises strength. He promises peace. He promises a host of other glorious things. He promises his presence, his providential control, and so on and so on. All of God's promises to his people are fulfilled and graciously provided for us in Jesus Christ. And these promises come to us, and they are there for us when we are united in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we come into saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So, now that you're in Jesus, you can look at all the promises. You make a checklist of all the promises of God to the believer as found in the Holy Scriptures, promises for all of these wonderful things, and now that you're in Christ, you can go through the list. So, yep, check, 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 check. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So, if you're a Christian, you're in fine shape. Because all the promises of God are yours because Jesus is the amen. He's knocking at your door. He wants to come in and he wants to speak and he wants to enjoy company with you. He's also the truth. He is the faithful and true witness. Everything he tells you, every word he says to you, every promise he makes to you, every declaration you hear from his lips, is true. Now, the devil is a liar, and his children are liars, and his children are the people in the world, and they lie. And even when people become Christians, they still carry some of those remnants with them, and so they lie as well. So when you listen to people, when you hear the words of men, Very often, they're untrue. People lie. We are inundated with lies. All around us, we hear lies. But Jesus is the embodiment of the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And whenever he speaks, and whatever he says, and whatever he tells you, you can believe. Because he is the faithful and the true witness. And of course, that's true of the Bible. You can't uh, divide Jesus from his word. This is the word of Christ. This book is the word of God. And Jesus is God. There's no division between the Bible and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the living word, and this is the written word. And he speaks in this book. And since he is the truth, when he speaks in this book, you can trust what is said in this book. Uh, He is the faithful and the true witness. And so the Bible is absolutely trustworthy. It is inerrant, and you can trust everything in it, because it's the word of Christ. He's the amen, and he's the truth, and he's the creator. The text there in verse 14 tells us that Jesus is the beginning of creation. He's the beginning of God's creation. Now, we have to remember, of course, that the word beginning there doesn't mean what the Jehovah's Witnesses think it means. It doesn't mean what they tell you it means. They are not good scholars of the Bible, and they make up things. They tell you that the Greek says this, but uh, invariably 
Uh, they just don't know, and they make up things that fit their scheme. The fact of the matter is that this word doesn't mean the first one created. It means something like this. It means uh, the source, uh, the origin, that by which something comes to be. And so all of creation, including you and I, finds its origin in Christ. That's what he's saying. I am the origin of the created order. I am the source of the created order. I am the beginning of that creation. I'm where it all begins. That's what our Lord Jesus is saying. He's saying he's the creator. He's created everything. I am the origin and source of the creation. And that's everything, including you and me and everything else you can possibly imagine. We come from the hand of God. Colossians 1 and verse 15 to 18. Let's just read that for a moment. That's a glorious passage. That Christological passage in in Colossians is just absolutely stunning and stirs the soul to worship. Colossians 1, beginning at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So everything else in that passage explains what we're talking about. It also explains the firstborn of all creation. That is that Jesus has preeminence over all things. By the way, that's also part of the the significance of this word that is used here in Revelation 3. That word also means ruler, authority, having first place. And then Colossians, Paul saying, Jesus has preeminence over all creation. And so he's the source, he's the origin of it all, and he is preeminent and ruling over and has first place over all. He is the creator, and everything comes from him, and he wants to have a closer relationship with you. That's what's astonishing. The extraordinary thing is that this glorious God wants to walk more closely with you, your creator, the one who is the faithful and the true one, the one who is the amen. He knocks on the door of your heart. He knocks, as it were, on the door of our church and wants to be closer to us. And he wants to be closer to you. So who is he? Well, he's, he's glorious. This one who's, who's knocking at the door of your heart, calling on you to, to walk in greater intimacy with him. What an extraordinary privilege you have. Secondly, he's insistent. He's insistent. Behold, I stand at the door and, and I keep knocking. It's the present tense. He's just hammering away. He's knocking on the door. He's not stopping. This is insistent. And he's not only knocking, but he's calling. Behold, I stand at the door. And if anyone hears my voice, 
So he's not just knocking at the door, but he's, he's voicing his insistence at the door. If this happened at your home, and if someone's knocking at the door and calling you and calling you, if you're like me, I'd be a little troubled. But the extraordinary thing is here. Jesus, the one we've just been talking about who was glorious, is knocking at your door and insistently calling on you to open up and allow him to come in. And what it shows us then is just how important this is to the Lord Jesus. I mean, you need to think about this. That it's important to Jesus to walk closely with you. It tells us how fellowship with us is desirable to him. It tells us that being close to us is significant enough to him that he knocks on the door and he calls for our attention and he calls upon us to respond appropriately and to open so that he might come in. In John 17, 24, you know that passage. It's the the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. And at one point in verse 24, he's speaking to the Father and he says, Father, I desire, and remember, I just said to you, consider how desirable it is to Jesus that he be able to walk closely with us, that he have an increasingly intimate relationship with you. That's his desire. It's evident in that text. It's also evident now in John 17, 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am. Now, he's talking about the disciples who are with him. He's also talking about the disciples whom he must yet call. That's us. And now he says, I desire. This is what I want. And I ask you that you might see to it that it might be so. That they, that you, would be with him where he is to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And so, how insistent the Lord Jesus is that at the end we be with him, so he is insistent that now we be closer to him. He prays the Father that the Father will see to it that we are with him at the end to behold his glory, being intimate with him. In the same way, now he's knocking on the door of your heart so that we today might be more intimate with him, that we might see more of his glory today, walk more closely with him today, enjoy greater experience of his glory today. That's why I'm saying, yes, he's, he's quite insistent. This is a knock that's not going to stop. This is a a caller who's not going to go away. Thirdly, he's gracious. He's gracious. The Lord Jesus is not interested in just a, a passing acquaintance. There's a song I listen to every now and then. Somebody knocks at the door and the man says, Well, I says, I don't even know if I want to answer because I've got nothing to say. Sometimes we feel like that. 
I got, I got nothing for you. I have no words. I'm all out. Jesus is not interested in a passing acquaintance. He's not interested in a casual conversation. He wants intimate fellowship. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him, and he with me. He doesn't want to come in and say, well, I've got to go. I'll have a quick snack. I'll keep my coat on, but I've got to go. I have things to do, places to go, people to see. No, the word eat, while it has to do with a long and a leisurely meal, as is customary in the Middle East, while you take your traveling coat off and you sit down and you're going to stay a while, And you're going to have course after course. You're going to eat at a leisurely pace. And you're going to converse. And you're going to talk. And you're going to chat. And you're going to interact. You're going to have communion. That's what the Lord Jesus is talking about. He says, open up the door. I want to spend some time with you. I want to have heart-to-heart talk with you. We tend to think, men tend to think, well, you know, the heart-to-heart, the bearing our feelings, the talking about deep things, uh, women do that. Well, no. Jesus does that. That's what he wants with you. He wants a heart-to-heart with you. He wants to spend time with you. He wants you to bear your soul to him as he will speak openly and honestly with you through his word. This is deep fellowship. This is real and intimate communion. And so extraordinarily, Jesus wants that with you. With all your faults, with all the ways in which you, well, you can sing about it earlier, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone even with you. And perhaps now, especially with you, he wants to draw near. He wants you to draw near to him. That's grace, you see. None of us deserves that kind of fellowship with Jesus. None of us deserves that kind of intimacy. Not the superstars of evangelicalism or people like us, just the foot soldiers. None of us deserves that, but Jesus wants that. Psalm 27 says, You have said, Seek my face. My heart says, Your face, Lord, do I seek. That's how we respond. When Jesus says here, Open up the door. I want to come in and have fellowship with you. That's how we respond. You said, seek my face. My heart says, your face, Lord, do I seek. Let me open up. I think think McShane probably speaks for us. This is what we want. McShane says, learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Live much. In the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love. And repose in his almighty arms. See, that's what Revelation 3.20 is talking about. That's what he's saying to these lukewarm Christians. He's saying, now liven up. 
There is joy to be had and there is fellowship to be enjoyed. There is intimacy with God that will enrich you and stir you to live for his glory. Open the door and let me in and we will enjoy such intimate fellowship. That's what he wants with us. That's what he wants with you. And I'm saying he's gracious because we don't deserve it. He's gracious because, well, there's nothing better for us than to how does McShane put it? Live much in the smiles of God. I want to go through life with the smile of God upon me. Bask in his beams. Now, there's enough troubling things in the world. Let me live, let me walk, basking in the smiles of God, basking in the beams that, that come from his face. Feel his all-seeing eye settle on you in love and repose. You know, just... Lie back and relax with his almighty arms around you. Not saying be lazy, you know, repose. Not saying be lazy and don't do anything. Of course, there's activity. But even while we're active and serving, we repose in the almighty arms of God. We're at peace. We're at rest. We're enjoying the sweetness of fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. John Flavel says, strive to come up to the highest attainment of communion with God in this world. And be not contented with just so much grace as will secure you from hell. Labor after such a height of grace and communion with God as may bring you into the suburbs of heaven on earth. Open the door and sup with him, and enjoy such communion with him, such enjoyment of him, as you will feel that you are living in the suburbs of heaven, even whilst you're on earth. And no more limping along, but rather bounding along, because you're so close to Christ, you feel yourself to be approaching the splendor of his heaven. What a gracious God. That's why McShane said about it, getting up in the morning to pray and read. He says, oh, who would not rise early to meet such a friend? He's gracious. And then lastly, he's personal. He's personal. So we can read this and we can say, well, he's writing this to the Laodiceans. And then who else is he writing it to? Well, he's writing it to uh, evangelical stars and reformed superstars. You know, he's writing to uh, the McShanes of the world, the, the Jonathan Edwards of the world, John MacArthur's of the present day, R.C. Sproul's, so forth. Nah, but not to the likes of me. We're just, we're just ordinary foot soldiers, you and I. God doesn't want that kind of intimacy with us. But that's not true. I suppose you could probably even use that as an excuse for not pursuing God. But it's not true. If anyone hears my voice, notice what he says. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's writing to a church, isn't he? I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him 
and eat with him, and he with me. Or eat with her, her with me. Now the interesting thing here is that that is in the singular. He's talking to the church and he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone, if anyone, one of you, I mean, this is where, you know, if I, if I were to move around here, um, somebody said to me at Cary, do you want the, the handheld mic in case you want to go into the congregation? <laughs> I say, well, no, I, I, don't, I don't do that. <laughs> but imagine if I went around you and I said, pointed to you, what about you? You'd be really uncomfortable. But that's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone... If any one of you opens up. So he's saying this is a personal thing. There is a sense in which it's addressed to the church. And we feel that. The weight of that responsibility and the privilege of that invitation, we feel that. But there's a personal element here. An intensely personal aspect to this address. If any one of you if you want to walk closely with God, if you want to walk more intimately with God, the Lord Jesus wants that. He's calling for that. He's inviting you to that. He's urging you towards that. He's calling you into closer relationship with himself tonight. If you want to know, well, what's the will of God for me? Well, here it is. This is it. I don't know what else he has for you in your life, but he has this. I know that. He wants to walk more closely with you. He wants to have more intimacy with you. If anyone wants deeper fellowship, as I do, open the door and I'll come in. Well, who's standing at the door of our church? And who's standing at the door of your life? Well, it's the Lord Jesus. It's the Lord Christ. He's the glorious and insistent and gracious and personal Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, as Dr. Carson wrote, what astonishing mercy and grace. Now, three implications. First of all, let's, let's search our hearts. Now, let's search our hearts. You need to search your heart. You need to ask yourself, and I need to ask myself, have I drifted? Have I grown cold? Perhaps not cold, perhaps just lukewarm. Have I gone off the boil, as it were? There were days when I was on fire, as they say. But those days have, have gone. And uh, is there a self-sufficient attitude? Is there a a coolness and a mechanical aspect to my prayers and my devotion? Am I going through the motions? Yeah, we need to ask ourselves that. Uh, Kent Hughes writes this, which do you view as more pressing, more urgent activity, reading and watching the news or reading and studying the Bible? Obviously, they're both of, of value, but on a day-to-day -day basis, if you've got only time for one or the other, which gets done? If you only had time to do one thing or the other, and your choices were between taking time to pray or checking email or Facebook or Twitter or whatever, 
which would you view as more pressing activity? See, that gives you a sense of priority. It gives you a sense of the level of fervency in your relationship with the Lord. We need to search our hearts. How do you know if you're lukewarm? How do you know if you've drifted towards lukewarm? How do you know if, well, maybe you're not lukewarm, but you can see it from where you're standing? How do you know? Well, at least two ways. First of all, am I going through the motions? You know, you, you do church things. You're not, you're not going to bars on Sunday night. You're at church. But it's dull. And, you know, there are a variety of things you can blame, but, you know, where's your heart? Uh, you're reading and praying at home. They're kind of, kind of formal, and um, you're a little disengaged. When you sing these hymns, I mean, these are great hymns we sing. When you sing these hymns, it's like singing the Beatles, you know. It's okay, it's good. But it doesn't thrill the soul, doesn't energize you the way you used to. So, yeah, are you going through the motions? Second, are you tolerating and even cherishing secret sins? You know, some of those, those respectable sins that... Um, Jerry Bridges writes about in his book, uh, sins that, uh, that we tolerate in our lives as Christians. You need to know that God hates sin, whatever it is. Proverbs says, God hates the, the haughty eyes, the lying tongue, a false witness, sowing discord. God hates these things. Are you tolerant of sin? Does sin not, not bother you? Even when you're convicted for a time, even when you read it in the scriptures, when you hear it in a sermon, that you're blasé about it. Is that the kind of thing that's going on? Well, that's a sign of lukewarmness. And perhaps you need to ask yourself, where is the blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? John Owen asks, or he says, ask yourself, where have I been wandering after other lovers? Where have I been wandering after other lovers? Jesus is the lover of your soul. And have you been committing spiritual adultery? So we need to, uh, we need to search our hearts. Secondly, let's seek the Lord. Let's seek the Lord. If this is true, and it's true, then let's seek the Lord. And thank God tonight that the Lord's knocking at your heart. I'm not saying you're in a desperate way. I'm just saying the Lord wants more from you. He wants to be closer to you. And maybe you've been walking closely with the Lord. Well, he wants to be even closer. If you've been lukewarm, he wants you to move from that into greater intimacy with him. He wants more for you. He wants to raise you in terms of your communion with him. He wants your life to be rich and full. And the way it's rich and full is as you spend more time and deeper time and richer time with him. That's what he wants from you. So seek him. You know, in, in Song of Songs, the, 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 the man is knocking at the door of his beloved and he's knocking and knocking, and she, for one reason or another, doesn't, 
doesn't answer. And then finally she goes to the door, but then he's gone because he's given up. And then she goes after him. And a lot of commentators say, well, no, that's an analogy. That's a picture of Christ and his church. And, and so the church needs to, you know, we know that he wants to s- spend time with us. So let's go after him. Let's go look for him. And where do you find the Lord Jesus Christ? Where do you look for him? Well, in, in prayer and in the word. In prayer and in the word. We seek after communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to Robert Murray McShane. He talks about um, the kinds of reforms he needs to make in his prayer life so that he might be closer to the Lord, so that he might seek the Lord. He says, I ought to pray before seeing anyone. Often when I, when I sleep long or meet with others early and then have family prayer and breakfast and early noon callers, often it is 11 or 12 before I begin secret prayer. This is a wretched system. It is unscriptural. I can do no good uh, to those who come to seek uh, from me or seek help from me. Uh, the conscience feels guilty, the soul unfed, the lamp not trimmed. Then when secret prayer comes, the soul is often out of tune. I feel it is far better to begin with God, to seek his face first, to get my soul near to him before it's near to anyone else. In general, it is best to have uh, at least one hour alone with God before engaging in anything else. I'm persuaded that I, that I ought never to do anything without prayer, and if possible, special secret prayer. I ought to spend the best hours of the day in communion with God. It's the noblest and most fruitful employment. I ought not to give up the good old habit of prayer before going to bed. I ought to read three chapters of the Bible in secret every day at least, and so on and so on. He's talking about trying to reform his his prayer life, so that he might be closer to God. Now, you and I are not going to have the same kind of pattern as he does. So don't say, well, he's talking about hours in prayer. I can't. Don't be discouraged by the details of his exhortation. Just seek after God. Spend more time. Seek him in his word. Go after him as a lover would the beloved. Seek the Lord. Seek him in his word. Read the Bible. Pray as you read the Bible. We know that McShane uh, had a a scheme to read through the Bible in a year. You read through the Old Testament, New Testament uh, twice, and um, along with the Psalms and... uh, What's the other one? Proverbs? Anyway, so he... But you know, he also had one, a scheme where you read through the Bible in a month. Read through the Bible in a month. Why would you do that? That involves a lot of reading. Well, it's because of this. It's because where do you find Christ? In the Bible. I want to be close with Christ. Well, it's going to take some effort. You know, it's not by osmosis. It's not one of those lie down on the bed, put the thing on your head, and learn Italian overnight while you sleep. Hope it doesn't skip so you only learn one word 60,000 times. It takes effort. It's not just, Lord, just zap me, and I'll be really, really close to you. If it worked that way, that'd be great. But it doesn't. It involves effort. Read your Bible. You know? <laughs> That's an alarm to go read your Bible, right? That's a... So it's not rocket science, folks. So seek the Lord. 
And I might add, not just prayer and reading the scriptures, but, but uh, holy conversation. How do, you, how do you learn of Christ? How do you get closer to Christ? Well, you, you spend time with people who are close to Christ. If you want to be corrupt, go live with corrupt people. You know, Jack can tell you about the danger of working where he worked in the prison and how steadfast God had to keep him so that he remained faithful as he did. But it's tough there. He testified to that years, you know, for years. We, we know about how God kept him, but it's dangerous there. Do you want to spend time? If you want to be corrupt, go spend time with corrupt people. If you want to know the Lord, spend time with those who know him. Converse with those who are close to him. Speak often of the things of God with those who are intimate with him. So seek the Lord. And then lastly, the last implication is let us believe on him. If you're not a Christian, then you want, to, you want to listen to this. You need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, you need to listen to his invitation. You need to respond to his call. Because Jesus comes to the door of unbelievers as well. And if you're not a Christian, the Lord Jesus is knocking at your door. He's saying, come to me that you might have life. He's saying, believe in me that you might be saved. And you have to respond properly to him. One pastor who died and is now with the Lord, he said, it is the greatest privilege in the world to have Jesus at your door. But the greatest damnation in the world for him to stay there. You know, there was, a, there was a ship called the Arizona that sank during the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And there were men who were trapped inside. They couldn't get at them because of the oil and the gas that was in the water. They couldn't drill. and So they couldn't save them. But they were trapped in compartments of air and people standing near could hear the knocking of pieces of metal against metal. These men were in there and they were, they were hitting, knocking, hoping someone would hear and be able to save them. They couldn't save them. And then eventually the knocking died, died out. Those men had died. The knocking stopped. It marked the death of those men. And one day, you know, Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart. And he's saying, believe on me and I'll save you. He's knocking at the door of your heart. And one day, one day, it's going to stop. And that will mark not his death, but your death. Because then the opportunity is gone. Then the way to safety is over. Then there's no hope. Today, he's still knocking. Still hope. Still knocking. You can still come. Still believe. Still be saved. So believe today. Trust the Lord Jesus today. Before the time runs out. 
before the knocking stops. Be saved. Trust the Lord Jesus. He'll forgive you. He'll take you to his heaven. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, how we thank you that there's still hope for those who are here and those who are listening or watching, or those who will watch and listen, still hope. We know that there is a time coming when you will cease to invite them and you will end all the invitations. So change them tonight, we pray. Bring them to yourself tonight, we plead. And for those of us who already know you, how we want to thank you that that you want to walk in greater intimacy with us. We're astounded at the privilege. And we pray that you'll help us. We are weak. We are prone to wander. Our zeal abates. But Lord, help us. Give us grace so that we might seek after you and run after you and read your word and call upon your name that we might walk ever more closely with you. We ask for Jesus' sake.